Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Third Act. Today, I talk with Francis West, the wisdom whisperer. Francis left Taiwan to go to college in the United States and was fortunate to land a job with IBM after graduation. She quickly moved up the ranks, working in both the United States and China. But after many years, she wanted to change. So she applied for a job at IBM Research, thinking she'd be working in their availability center, but found out that it was actually their accessibility center. In her role, she helped IBM lead the transformation of products and services to be accessible to all types of people. Today, she continues to advance her knowledge and interest in accessibility by advising and investing in startups focused on accessibility technologies. She's also the author of a book, Authentic Inclusion, where she talks about how diversity is at the core of disruptive innovation. Hi, Francis. Welcome so much to Third Act and Happy New Year. We're recording this right after the the holiday. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Let's go ahead and get going. I'm so excited to talk to you about everything that you're doing. You were born and raised in Taiwan. And so what what brought you to the United States? It's a bit of a history. I was born and raised in Taiwan until I was 14. Uh, my family actually moved to Hong Kong because of my father's job. And I was attending first year of university in Hong Kong. And I saw a poster for exchange students, sophomore exchange program to come to the U.S. And I applied. And much to my surprise, I was chosen to be the exchange student to go to um, Washington Lee University in Lexington, Virginia. It was supposed to be a one-year program. But after being here for three months, I met my husband and uh, fell in love. And uh, After three months, you met him? Yeah, I was on campus, you know, in December at a Christmas party, and uh, I couldn't even really speak English very well. And uh, this guy walked up to me and introduced himself. I guess you could say it was love at the first sight. I was like, oh, my gosh, that is such a cool story. I, I, I knew you you had told me that you met him there, but I didn't realize it was in the first three months. That would And you're still married, right? Yeah, first three months. I mean. Looking back, I don't know. I mean, I was quite daring and uh, 19, you know, very young. And I was staying with a Jewish professor family and really no guidance, direct guidance uh, or contact from my parents. And uh, here I was, you know, just out there. But uh, the rest of this is history, so to speak. You said you had gotten a job waitressing in a Chinese restaurant, but, but then you end up working at IBM. What happened? How'd that happen? Well, once I decided to stay in the United States against my parents, my school, everybody's, you know, desire, actually, I was reprimanded very harshly for uh, being disloyal, unfaithful to my culture, to my country, to everything, to my parents' upbringing. I, uh, I had to really think hard to support myself financially. So I started waitressing in Chinese restaurants. And that was the only place I could find employment, frankly. And later on, I did waitress at Romada Inn as a breakfast waitress. So I kind of supported myself through these waitressing jobs. But I always wanted to have a job with a, you know multinational companies. And I was in Lexington, Kentucky. And at that time, uh, IBM and Procter & Gamble were two companies I wanted to really work for. And everybody thought I was crazy because here I 
well, I was a foreign student with no really the right visa, and but I was determined to uh, to try. And uh, I was very lucky that there was a branch manager from IBM Lexington, Kentucky branch, interview me and actually took my experience as waitressing to heart as the first and the best customer service experience and hired me into IBM sales uh, you know, office in Lexington, Kentucky. I had the exact same experience. I was a waitress. That was it. And IBM and Procter & Gamble were the big jobs to get coming out of Ohio State. Accenture was also a good one. And I can remember telling my whole waitressing story to the recruiter because I'm like, yeah, it's a really hard job. You got to make people happy. You don't always get tipped, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, people always ask me, like, what were some of your best jobs? I go, everybody should be a waiter or a waitress. Like, it's the best way to learn about customer service. Well, I actually forced my two sons to do these frontline servicing jobs. My son, uh, my older son was uh, at Pete's Coffee, a barista, and my younger son was uh, doing catering at Boston College, uh, throughout college. And uh, both of them are doing well. And I, I attribute to that their frontline uh, service-oriented uh, job experience. I have done the exact same thing with my three kids. Okay, so you're at IBM. You're young. You're Taiwanese. So what was it like to be a you know young Taiwanese woman at IBM? What was this back in the eighties? It was actually I started in seventy nine. <laughs> so that's really really oh, for me it was just everything was so new. I mean I was the first. Actually, I was the second uh, Asian person in that branch office, and there was a guy ahead of me, but. I think looking back again, uh, as we were talking, IBM has really, as a company, has created a really good culture to not really focus on your uh, your differences. They immediately uh, assigned a mentor. So I was following all these successful marketing reps, salespeople around, you know, going on customer calls. And so it was just a lot of learning, a lot of excitement, a lot of possibilities. Uh, so it was it was probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. Never really thought about anything other than just I need to learn. I need to be a fast learner because there's so much to be absorbed. By the way, this is in Lexington, Kentucky. It's unbelievable. In 1979. In 1979. And yet there was just no question that that the company had a trust in my ability, and then I wanted to make a difference. So it was really that simple. During your tenure at IBM, you were sent to Beijing to work on a Chinese financial exchange. You told me that it was the first time you ever felt discrimination. Talk about that. Yeah, it was uh, 1993. For those of you who have a few a few years, I guess, will remember that. That was the first time IBM actually went through some real near-death experience, right? In 1992-93 timeframe, IBM almost went under. So there was a lot of layoff in the United States. And uh, I was actually in my mid-career was about to um, to really uh, take off. But then the, the IBM's U.S. situation became very, very uh, difficult. So I made a decision to see if there are other places where there are, there are growth. And China happened to be one of the growth market for IBM. Since I speak and write Chinese as my first language, I thought it would be great to go there. And I also thought it would be a very easy assignment because my background, my experience, I already had quite a few years of management experience in the U.S. Little did I know when I got there that 
when I'm in the United States, you know, if there's any kind of a so-called discrimination, it's more of a race discrimination, like I'm Asian. So I've really perfected to deal with, you know, any kind of, you know, any kind of subtle or not so subtle racial discrimination, but never focus on being female or woman in business. And uh, when I got to China, uh, we had a lot of Asian uh, customers, I mean, uh, Chinese customers and the Chinese executives uh, at work. And the Asian culture that the women in business actually was not that much celebrated or not used to. So for the first time, I had to deal with the subtle or sometimes not so subtle gender discrimination. So that's when I, looking back, we realized, you know, today in our society or globally, we talked about discrimination, you know, whether it's race based and whatever, but it can happen anywhere. In this case, we're all Chinese, but because I'm woman in business, you know, I was sometimes really excluded or, or some inappropriate, you know, remark will make. And then I really have to learn to navigate that landscape. When I was working at Accenture, I never really felt much gender discrimination either. And, but I went to Japan to work for a while and, oh my goodness, talk about a different culture. I, you could really see it there. So moving on, you, you eventually take a job at what you think, I think you remember telling me the IBM Availability Center, but it turns out to be the IBM Accessibility Center. So tell us about that center and what your role was there. Yeah, that was uh, interesting, you know, we talked about in life, you know, especially, uh, I guess in this case, uh, women in career, there are times when you want to make decision that, you know, that's in line uh, with your overall, you know, priorities. In this case, you know, my family uh, situation was that I really wanted to have a job and career that at that point uh, to be more uh, U.S.-based. And then there's uh, this opportunity in IBM Research that came up that um, I thought, wow, this is such a great IBM research. Of course, it has such a great cachet. I wanted to join. And frankly, I, was, I did not like the job I was doing at the time. So I was, I was really hoping and wanting to get to switch job. So I interviewed this job. Now we really kind of study the uh, description of the job because at the time, what I heard about this job, the, the organization actually has some morale challenges. So the whole interview was about whether I had the capability or the experience of managing a low morale organization. We never talked about the job. And I thought I was joining availability center because high availability is one of the you know system requirements for IBM mainframe. The word accessibility was a foreign word. It never even registered until I took the job and found out it's about accessibility. In this case, the definition of accessibility is about digital access, making sure that everybody can access technology without any barrier. Uh, so it's a really completely different job from what I thought I was you know, taking, but it turned out to be a life-changing job. When you got there, how long did it take before you figured out, oops, we're not talking about five nines, we're talking about digital accessibility and inclusion. <laughs> the first two, three weeks when I got the kind of the operation guy, you know, you, you start giving all this in information about the organization. And I start reading, turning the pages. And I still remember I was reading in bed. I was like, wait, this is not about availability. This is about access for people with disabilities. At first, I'm like, what, what do I know about people with disability? Because at that time I was still young. <laughs> I didn't, I couldn't identify any kind of disabilities. 
But I always jokingly said, you know, as I as I do more in the accessibility area, the more is about serving myself now. Because as I get older, I start acquiring vision impairment. You know, like bifocal is a must, and now my hearing beginning to go. So captioning is 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 a necessary when I watch TV or movies. And uh, mobility, you know, I'm very interested in all these new technology of autonomous vehicles. And I can imagine one day I don't want to drive or couldn't drive. So it's, it's fascinating. And what year was this that you took that job? It was at the end of 2003 and beginning of 2004. So we're talking about 17, 18 years ago. Yeah. You know, IBM always was on the front edge of you know, pushing boundaries for technology. So, because that was really early. I can remember when I was uh, running our Microsoft account for Accenture, you know, one of the early meetings I had on that, but it was more like 2016, 2017. And it was just incredible to be in a meeting talking about with, with people who were both vision and hearing impaired and talking about what their experience was and using the technology. And it was the first time in my over 30 years career that I'd ever been you know, sort of put in their shoes. What do you remember as well about sort of some of the most profound things you learned when you took over that team? Well, one of the first thing was, you know, when I had my first meeting, the team member, um, some of them are blind and some of them are deaf and they're deaf, you know, PhD scientists, you know, researchers. And I was amazed. So for example, the first time I watched a blind person navigate using computers and how they use keyboard, you know, just... And then how they can listen at the twice or three or five times the speed of you and I can when they use what they call the screen reader. So the, the ability that they have in, in navigating technology was, was mind-boggling. And then I also had a, a deaf person on my team who used sign language to communicate. So we will have his uh, signer will speak to us about what he's signing and you would think that would be kind of awkward. And I remember I was fascinated by this, you know, going through a third party to communicate. But after like one minute, you totally forget, you know, that Seth is deaf. And then you totally identify Roger, his interpreter's voice. From that point on, if we are on a conference call or a Zoom meetings, you just communicate as if there's, you know, like any other person. So that's when I realized that, you know, maybe in the initial shock or, or um, you know, because you're unfamiliar with people with disabilities, but they're human. If you have a common, uh, common goal, in this case, a task at hand, then you just focus on what needs to be done. And, uh, and they're, because they're different ability, their perspective and their creativity really, really shine through. So that was the, the biggest takeaway for me is, and then it actually circled back to when I first started my, my career, you know, I really like mentioned, I appreciated how IBM actually didn't focus on my differences, but just re- recognize that that difference could be an asset. So that's really uh, the kind of foundational driver for me staying in this business for, for so long and, and, and still going. You know, if you look back at your tenure at IBM and the work that you did there, what are you most proud of? I would have to say is the moment where when I represented the IT industry to testify in front of the U.S. Uh, Foreign Relations Committee. 
on the need for the United States to pass the uh, UN Convention for the Rights of People Disability Act. The topic of digital inclusion is bigger than individual, bigger than even a corporation like IBM or Accenture or Microsoft. It is a societal topic, right? Because we're talking about digital access for all. So it really takes what I believe a public you know, policies and also private innovation to work together. So UN kind of uh, organization created a great framework and uh, U- US could have been the leader if we were part of the, that whole convention. Uh, unfortunately, you, you United States did not pass the convention treaty. We're six votes short, but still the spirit of the United States, you know, are working, for example, American Disability Act and the subsequent interpretation from technology standpoint is still world leading. And uh, that's probably the most uh, significant and, you know, most proud moment of my, my, my life. And also, by the way, my father worked for United Nations. So when I address the United Nations in some of these topics, uh, I always thought about him um, because he, he's, he was my hero. Oh my gosh, what a wonderful story and how impactful. So after 37 years, which is amazing, you decide to retire from IBM. What do you think you're going to do then for your third act? <laughs> my third act, yes, absolutely. I, I actually retired with the intention to start my bis- my own business. I knew I didn't want to work for another company because after IBM, I felt like there's just no other company I need to work for or want to work for. And I'd also, I wanted to really try to be entrepreneur, you know, and uh, so I decided to start my own kind of a, I call it boutique, I guess you can call it, strategy consulting company working with uh, both uh, enterprise customers and also startup. I knew actually in the very beginning, if I only have one minute to spend, I want to spend with startup because to me, that's the next generation of IBM, Microsoft. I really believe that, you know, topic like digital inclusion, just like climate, you know, change, or we need a new generation to really take action because it's a long haul societal topic and project, and it's it's going to take many, many years. So the, the sooner, the better we can motivate the younger generation, the better it is. And, and to me, startup is, is one vehicle to get there. And are the startups that you're working with, are they focused on uh, digital inclusion? Yes, it's very interesting. The startup, but many of them actually are technologists first, which is actually what I think is the right thing to do. But the, these are the what I call I feel like they're a very special breed of technologists that actually want to use technology to better humanity. In actually, in all the cases, they kind of accidentally got into accessibility, just like I was. Um, so from that standpoint, actually give them the clarity to balance the purpose and profit. Because in the accessibility world, historically, there's a lot of a compliance talk and also a lot of a kind of philanthropy, charity mindset thinking, and not so much business. So I actually welcome, you know, these uh, new entrepreneurs, a younger entrepreneur coming in from business and also technology angle, because as you and I know, Profit actually is, is a good thing, right? Because that sustains you. Because they're special, they really want to understand and want to learn how to create a, a solution 
that's sustainable and scalable for all humanity. So it's it's fascinating and it's a lot of fun to to work with them. I can't even imagine what people are coming up with. And I have I've interviewed a couple of people who work for ARP and they have a technology arm and they've been talking about some of the innovation for inclusion, as you mentioned, for when as people get older. You know, I was just talking to Bradley Sherman who wrote The Super Age and in by 2030 there'll be more people over 65 than under 18. So it's absolutely needed as we progress. So you talk about, you wrote a book called Authentic Inclusion. So talk about that. What prompted you to write it? So when I uh, retired, that was 1906, I mean, 2016. Uh, (laughs) But if you recall, you know, around 2015, that was the famous Google walkout, you know, the gender. Oh yeah, of course. sure. And uh, the CEO action was just put in place. So there was a lot of talk about, you know, or the beginning of this inclusion mindsets coming in. And then from that point on, what I noticed is that a lot of companies, especially in the tech industry, because they're well-funded, I mean, they're super well-to-do companies and start throwing money at it. So overnight, you see all these inclusion consultants or conferences coming in, which is not, not a bad thing. However, to me, there is this, this foundational action that the company need to really think about. In this case, it's actually not just think of it as an HR practice of hiring or grooming talent, but also technology underpinning, which is accessibility and, and the digital inclusion. But people are not connecting the dots yet at that time. So I felt like it's very important for me to really go out and to to create this, you know, connection for especially the C-suites for the board members, that if you think digital inclusion or digital transformation is important, as you know, Accenture, like in the past five years, the top 20 trends, you know, 10 trends is always digital transformation is always on top of that. But very few people make digital transformation connection with digital inclusion. And to me, that has to be the way to think about inclusion not just as a process or principle thinking, but as a, a technology action as well. So that was it uh, for the messaging part of the Authentic Inclusion book. But also from the personal standpoint, I knew that when I retired from IBM, I really don't have the IBM platform anymore. And so a book potentially could give me a forum you know, to really amplify my thinking That's why I decided to write a book. I watched your TED Talk about authentic inclusion, which is great, and we'll put it in the show notes. And I was really struck by what you said when you you said your your kids ask you, Mom, why do you continue to work so hard? So, Mom, why why do you continue to work so hard? I worked so hard because even since 2016, if you even look at where we are today, this world of ours, not just the United States, around the world, there seems to be so much division and that um, inclusion is the concept of bringing everybody together. And so how do we create a common ground? And based on my personal experience and my professional experience to actually help maybe to share some of the house or share some of the stories, to me, it's even more important than ever. And um, so from that standpoint, um, I really actually working harder than ever 
I do believe that we need to come back and, and understand that technology has to have a place and also a inner kind of a core that is putting human first. And that beyond all this, you know, description of labels or pronouns and this and that, we are all humans. And there is a way of combining humanity and technology as a kind of go forward strategy. So I'm trying to do my part in imparting that that can do spirit. And also I now have three granddaughters. From that standpoint, I'm even more motivated to make sure that inclusion is real, is authentic, because I really will want to see my granddaughters when they grow up that they don't have to deal with or to be facing some of the challenges that you and I actually have been facing. And that technology actually can potentially play a play a role, a big role in a, in um, even the playing field, so to speak. It's fascinating. So you call yourself the wisdom whisperer. What does that mean? Well, I think the the word wisdom ties with my getting older, you know, and I I found myself sometimes actually getting less uh, patient and uh, and also because yes, I, I know that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel like I can just speak the truth, so to speak, speak my mind. And then some people actually keep saying, wow, that's a kind of, kind of uh, that's a wisdom that we really want. It's like, okay, if you want it, then, then I'm going to give it to you. But the whisperer part is that what I found is that the type of topic that we're talking about actually involves some deep, you know, kind of a, a thinking change, right? Or one can call a cultural shift of looking at topics like inclusion. So it has to be somebody who really wants it and not something you can just keep shouting at it, right? Or to say, you need to do this or go to another uh, diversity training. People have to want to get it. So I'm just going to be here providing the wisdom, so to speak, or a knowledge. But if you want it, I will whisper to you and then become yours. But it's for you to integrate or to uh, digest and then become yours. I'm not going to keep shouting at you and force you to do anything. That's not going to be authentic. Yeah, well, that's great. Sometimes I think I might need a little wisdom or maybe you can come and talk to my children as well. So <laughs> so I almost titled this podcast, <laughs> I'm not done yet. What, are, what aren't you done with yet? I do think that uh, this topic, the more I, I, I work it, the more it has the importance to tie to the, for example, the future of work and future of society. You know, there's a lot of talk about ESG nowadays, because I mentioned earlier, I'm beginning to do work with the board, you know, members. And uh, I think there's so much lesson learned about people with disability as a foundational level, because they are the real human. I mean, if we see them as somebody that needs, that are not quote unquote perfect, that is exactly what the humanity is about because we're imperfect or we have certain differences that makes this species special. So if you look at, for example, work from home, you know, with COVID, work from home has been something that people with disabilities have been asking for for years, right? Because if you, for example, you have a mobility challenge, working from home is a lot easier. But now everybody's buying into that. And then yesterday on uh, 60 Minutes, they were talking about you know, the future work needs to be flexible. Again, people with disability always have flexibility. Oh, working women and working dads. I mean, my goodness. 
<laughs> back to the future on that one. Right. And then they talked about work-life balancing. That has always been, again, women or underserved immigrants, they always have family obligation on top of the work obligation. So all the things that we actually can learn from underserved population, especially people with disability, give us a blueprint for the future of work, a future society, and future value. So from that standpoint, that's why in my book I talked about, I really believe, I hope, at least this is this is what I hope, that we will have a renaissance and that, you know, profit is important. But in this case, I think the Gen Zers is demanding that the profit has to be aligned with purpose and also principles. You know, going back to, to that's that's the only sustainable model in my mind uh, versus profit only kind of a thinking. Well, Francis, this has been so fun to talk to you here in January of 2022. We will publish in our show notes your LinkedIn and how to get a hold of your book. Where else can we find you online? Um, you can uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, fwest34, three, four, number three and number four. Um, my website is francistwest.co, C-O, not .com. FrancisWest.co. All right. Well, we will publish all that. And thank you so much for being on Third Act today. What a wonderful topic for everybody. Oh, thank you so much for your invitation. This is a great way to kick off the new year. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.